0: grateful to you that you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. We thank you that we have the revelation of the one true God, that your word is true, that it is holy, that it is pure. We thank you that you have preserved it and that you have given it to us. And we ask your blessing upon our time this morning as we look into it. We understand that we are unable, apart from the Spirit of God, to understand spiritual things. And so we pray for your ministry here this morning as we look at your word, that you would bring it to our hearts to bear upon us, to convict us, and to enlighten us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The God that we serve and the God that is revealed in the pages of Scripture is completely other than anything that could ever be invented or designed or imagined by the mind of men. Typically, an idol, or I guess I should say all idols, are nothing more and nothing less than an image of the idolater. That is to say that when men fashion idols, we tend to fashion idols that reflect us. They look a lot like us. They think a lot like us. They act a lot like us. But God is completely other than that. In fact, in Psalm 50, verse 12, the Lord condemned the wicked and He said, These things you have done and I kept silent and you thought that I was just like you. The wicked had got away with all of their lies and all of their slander and their evil speaking and their adulteries and their fornications and their idolatry. And God says, because I didn't judge you quickly, you made the presumption, you made the mistake that I was just like you, that I endorsed what you were doing and that you were a reflection of me. And that's typically what Christians and mankind in general tends to do. We tend to think that in order for God to exercise compassion, that He has to exercise compassion according to our standards of compassion. If He's going to be merciful, He has to be merciful in a way that comports with our understanding of mercy. However it is that God shows love, He has to be loving like we would be loving if we were God. And we tend to think that God is altogether just like us. The friends, the painful reality is that God is nothing like you and I. Nothing at all. And, and that's compounded by the fact that we are stuck in this sin, in our wretched bodies and with our sinful nature still tagging along. We tend to reflect or think that God or reflect upon God just as if He were like us. It's been said that God created man in His image and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. It's exactly true. We've been trying to return the favor ever since. We create gods and we think of God in terms of how He should comport with what we expect God to be like. But that's not what God is like. I was during the church camp out a couple of weeks ago, I was reading the last half of the book of Isaiah. Now, any time I get into the Old Testament, I start reading through the Old Testament prophets. So I always look forward to that last half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66. It's not that I don't enjoy the first half, verses, chapters 1 through 39. It's all about judgments and God's victory over judgments and the sin of the nations. All of that is fascinating. But I always sort of press forward and look for the beginning of chapter 40 because beginning at chapter 40, God sort of pulls back the curtains of eternity in heaven and gives us a glimpse of His character and His nature and His glory. And it is in Isaiah chapter 40 where God talks about measuring out the heavens with a, with a span and how He uh, is this magnificent and marvelous God who has weighed out the oceans in the hollow of his hand and measures the dust of the earth in a balance and has stretched out the heavens like a curtain, this majestic, awesome God. And in chapters 40 through chapter about 50, there's about 10 chapters there, where God begins to taunt the idols of the nations. And he says to the nations, Show me your idols. And it is as if God brings the idols into a courtroom and He begins to examine them. And here's what the Lord says to them. The Lord says to the idols, I will demonstrate that I am nothing like you. And then He challenges the idols. Reveal to us the future. Tell us from long ago things that are yet to come to pass. Tell me the end from the beginning. Go ahead, predict the future. And then the Lord measures up to His own challenge and He begins to predict the future Himself. And he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring my servant, a descendant of Jacob. This is going to be his nature. This is going to be his character. And then he goes back to the idols and he says, try your hand at it. You predict the future. Give, show us the end from the beginning. Give it your best shot. And then he goes back and he talks about the kingdom and the glories of the kingdom and how all of Israel will be saved and how he will redeem Israel out of uh, out of their sin and how he will use Cyrus and even names a pagan king who had never even been born yet names his first name Then he goes back to the idols. Try your hand at it. Give it a shot. See if you can do it. Tell us the future. And back and forth he goes like that. And it all culminates in chapter 46. Listen to these verses. Verses 8 through 11. The whole thing sort of, all of it comes together. God's taunting of these idols. And listen to what he says. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like Me. Pause for a second. There is no one like Him. There is no other God than Him. Well, what is it that makes God different from the idols? This is the crux of the matter. This is the issue. And listen to what the Lord says. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, listen, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Now listen, let me make something clear. You either worship that God or you worship an idol. It's one or the other. If your God cannot predict the future, cannot guarantee the future, cannot plan something and bring it to pass, cannot trump the plans and the schemes and the wickedness of men, if your God is not sovereign, if He doesn't rule over all, if He doesn't know the end from the beginning and can't plan something and say something and then bring it to pass, then your God is an idol. And I don't know what idol factory you got Him out of, but you need to get rid of Him. Because the God of Scripture, the thing that distinguishes Him from idols is the ability to predict the future. And then when he says something, he just brings it to pass. He accomplishes all of his good pleasure. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that he just accomplishes some of his good pleasure? Or do you believe that he's really not able to accomplish any of his good pleasure? He just rolls the dice, takes a, a shot at what he hopes the future is going to be, and then works his best to try and hit it as close as he can. The God of Scripture knows the end from the beginning. He establishes his purpose. He says, I'm going to do it, and he does it. And nobody can afford his purpose or stand in his way. You know what the typical evangelical Christian God is like today? Puny, small, putrid, sick old deity who sits in heaven and desperately wishes he could save people, but he just can't. Just can't. Done everything he can, but he just can't save anybody. He would love to stop suffering, but he just can't because this whole creation is just run amok on him. He would love to do his purpose and accomplish his plans, but he's thwarted every turn by men, by our rebellion, by our wickedness. A puny, sick, weak, old man. Now, Christians won't typically say that that's who they think God is, but we talk about God as if that's what we really think of him. Um, He's trying to communicate, but he just He can't because we're not listening. We have this view of God that is far smaller than what he really is. How is it that God is able to say, I will do X, and then bring it to pass? With 100% accuracy. With 100% perfection. Absolutely guaranteed. How is he able to do that? He does that, friends, through his providence. Through his providence. Providence is the way in which God orders natural circumstances, natural events, natural laws, naturally occurring details in order to accomplish his will. Providence is the way in which God works the wicked schemes and wicked choices of men, their self-serving intentions, their self-serving plans and goals, their wicked intentions and wicked goals, their wicked decisions and their wicked actions, all to accomplish His purpose and His goal. So that when the Lord says this will happen, it will happen. Because His purpose stands. And providence is that mysterious way that God works all of these things together for good. Not some things together for good, but everything together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, and for those whom he loves and whom love him. That's providence. Providence is the way that God rules in his creation, sovereignly ordering, natural events, everything supernatural and natural to accomplish his end and his means. And we have looked part part way at Providence, so looked partially at Providence, I should say, in Acts chapter twenty three, and you'll need to have your Bibles open to the book of Acts, chapter 23, as we look at the rest of this story of how it is that God delivered the Apostle Paul out of Jerusalem. It is difficult in Scripture to find a, a, a more concise or a more beautiful illustration of divine providence than we have even here in Acts, chapter 23. We can think of Joseph. Joseph is a wonderful example of that. I'm going to talk about him later. Esther is an incredible example of God's providence. We could talk about her later. But here we have it in the life of the Apostle Paul, and in verse 11, the Lord said to Paul, as you've witnessed for me in Jerusalem, you're going to Rome, I'm going to send you to Rome. And then the next morning, the Apostle Paul wakes up and he finds out that there has been a plot formed to take his life. And last time we were together, we looked at how that conspiracy on Paul's life was designed and then how it was discovered. And today we're going to look at how that conspiracy was derailed. Now let me go back and just give you the details of what's happened so far so that we don't have to... Reference it in too, greater, too much greater detail later on. How was the plot designed? Forty men said, we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink until we kill Paul. So then they go to the chief priests and the Sadducees who wanted Paul dead, and they said, here's what we've designed to do. We have 40 men who are involved in it. We need you to be complicit, and here's how we want you to set it up. We want you to talk to the commander and have the commander bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin for another trial, as if we're going to examine him to, to find out what we want to accuse him about. And then when they, when Lysias brings Paul down to the, to the Sanhedrin for the trial, we're ready and we're gonna stand in ambush and we will attack him and make sure we kill him before he ever gets close to the Sanhedrin. And the chief priests and the Sadducees, the elders of the people, they're willing to take part in that. They want to be complicit. And so they hatch this plot. Now, the Lord, that's how it was designed. But the Lord saw to it that it was discovered. Because one of these forty men, or somebody who knew about it, was talking about the ambush, talking about the plot on Paul's life, and one little boy just happened—well, it really didn't just happen. It was Paul's nephew. He heard about it somehow, and he didn't—he loved his uncle Paul enough that he didn't want to see his uncle Paul die. He didn't want to attend his funeral, so he rushed down into the barracks and he told his uncle Paul, "Unc, this is what is being planned regarding you. These men have hatched a, a plan to kill your life. They're going to..." They're going to ambush you, and he spills the beans to Paul, and Paul says, you need to take this to Lysias. So the centurion takes the boy to Lysias, he spills the beans to Lysias, Lysias finds out about him, and he dispatches the boy. That's how it was discovered. Today we're going to look, beginning at verse 23 through the end of the chapter, we're going to look at how the plot to murder Paul was derailed. We've looked at how it was designed and how it was discovered, and now we're going to see how it was derailed. How it is that the Lord triumphed over the wicked plans of men. Now, last time we were together, when we looked at how it was designed and how it was discovered, this is what we learned about providence. That providence does not negate, listen, providence does not, providence does not negate or nullify human responsibility. Do you remember that? It does not negate or nullify human responsibility. God told Paul, I'm sending you to Rome, but Paul didn't sit on his hands. He got busy to foil this plot by sending the boy to Lysias and working along with God to bring about God's sovereign will. The providence and the sovereignty of God does not negate or nullify human responsibility, whatever it might be, even in the areas of sanctification and evangelism and all of the means that are at our disposal. We're going to learn a second thing today about divine providence as we look at these verses and see how it is that this plot to kill Paul was derailed. Look at verse 23. Lysias, after he let the boy go, he called him to him. Uh, two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. With 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, they were also to provide mounts to Paul to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. We'll look at the letter here in a second. What I want you to notice is the size of this force. How many men is that? 200 foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. 200, 270. That's 470 people. That's a pretty large force of soldiers, isn't it? To carry one... Prisoner? 470 men to transport one prisoner? Does that seem like overkill to you? The entire Roman garrison in the city of Jerusalem at the time was a thousand men. A thousand people stationed at Fortress Antonio, and Claudius Lysias dispatches half of the garrison to transport one Roman prisoner. You and I might say that's kind of overkill, isn't it? I don't think it was overkill at all. Look, in the morning, in the morning, the plot was formed. Forty men had taken the oath. Now, Lysias finds out about it, and he's making plans to transport Paul that evening at 9 o'clock, third hour of the night. So he wants to leave at 9 o'clock that night to take Paul towards Caesarea. Lysias doesn't know if the 40 has grown to 400 over the course of the one day. He just knows that there are a lot of people in Jerusalem that want Paul dead. And Lysias is going to see to it that the Apostle Paul makes it out of Jerusalem alive, and so he orders 470 men to transport the Apostle Paul out of Caesarea. Lysias also makes a very good military decision. This is good military strategy. It was articulated by Ronald Reagan, peace through strength. You want to deter an attack? Then you look strong. You look weak and you invite an attack. That's the law of the jungle. That's the law of the world. The, the hyenas, you watch you ever watch the Discovery Channel and you, you see the hyenas or some predator come into a herd? Who do they look for? The limping and the sick and the weak. They invite an attack. They don't go after the strong. They go after the weakest in the herd. Lysias wants to deter an attack by looking strong. When I was in uh, grade school, I was always the kid, not only did I get picked last out of the, every lineup in the, in the crowd, but I was always the kid that got picked on first. I would rather have got picked on last and picked first, but it didn't work out that way. I got picked on first and got picked last for the, the teams. Well, when I started getting into junior high, the picking and picking and picking started to get more and more intense as guys started to bulk up and buff up. So I started working out and got bigger and bigger and bigger, not because I wanted to pick a fight, not because I wanted to invite a fight, not because I ever intended to fight. I just wanted to deter attacks. I wanted to be big enough that only a few people who were bigger than me would pick a fight with me, and I would be content to just have peace through strength. So that's what I did. That's what Lysias is doing. He is putting together a... a um, see, I grew up during the 80s when Ronald Reagan was always articulating peace through strength. That was my philosophy in high school as well. You look strong, you deter an attack. That's what Lysias is doing. He does not want to invite any kind of attack because Lysias is responsible for Paul. He may not like Paul. He may not be looking out for Paul. But if the Apostle Paul, while under his custody as a Roman citizen, is killed, you know what the rumor is going to be? And these types of rumors flew around in the ancient world all the time. If the Apostle Paul died while Lysias was watching him, the rumor would be that Lysias was in on the plot and that he had taken a bribe. Lysias would lose his post, and Lysias would likely lose his life if a Roman citizen who was under his custody was attacked and killed. So Lysias is not taking any chances. He's gonna make sure that Paul gets out of there. Now, now, you say, wouldn't 470, almost half of the Roman garrison, leaving the city of Jerusalem at nine o'clock at night, wouldn't that raise suspicions? You think it would raise suspicions? You think it would raise suspicions? It wouldn't. Roman troop movements like that were common. It was common for them to move half of the garrison out and four or five days later bring half of the garrison in again. They move troops from one city to another all the time. So what Lysias is doing is he is smuggling the Apostle Paul under cover of darkness out of the city in the midst of a troop movement to all apparent, for all apparent purposes to all observers would just look like a standard customary troop movement, a troop transfer. And he's going to get the Apostle Paul out of there, and so they leave at 9 o'clock at night, and Lysias gives command for not only 470 soldiers to accompany him, but they're putting the Apostle Paul on horseback himself. Why would they do that? In the event that Paul was attacked, he could get away quickly with the 70 horsemen who are with him. Also, friends, the Apostle Paul is pushing almost 60 years old by this time, and just two days earlier, he just had the tar beat out of him down in the temple. Do you remember that? I mean, he's slow. He would not move nearly as quickly as a well-trained, physically fit Roman soldier, so they put him on horseback to not slow them down. They put him on mounts, and as was the custom, Claudius Lysias wrote a letter to Felix. Now, what Claudius is doing is he is transferring authority and jurisdiction in this prisoner with all of these troops to his superior. He's pushing him off onto Lysias. He's sending him off to Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman uh, mini-capital, so to speak, of the providence. That's where the the governor was at. That's where all of the, the government functions for the whole province of Syria took place, was in Caesarea. It was heavily Romanized, heavily guarded, um, heavily Gentile city. And that's where Felix, the governor, is at. Now, I'm going to tell you a lot more about Felix in the weeks to come because when we get into chapter 24, it's all about Paul's defense to Felix. It's all about Paul standing before Felix and this interaction that happens between Paul and Felix. And I'll tell you all about him and the things that he did when we get into that, but for now, just remember this. He is the governor. He is Lysias' superior, and as was the custom, Lysias writes a letter. Now read the letter along with me. Not not out loud, but in your mind. Read the letter along with me. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, governor Felix. Greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. By the way, that is ten to an acquittal. That is the same thing as the highest ranking official in Jerusalem saying, I think he's innocent and I, need, I think he needs to be released. I found him deserving, under no accusation deserving death. From Lysias' perspective, Paul should be released. That's what he's recommending to Felix. Verse 30, When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. Now you notice that this is just a bare recitation of the facts, right? The letter. There's a couple quirky things about the letter that I want to point out. But first of all, notice it's just a bare recital of the facts. Here's what happened. We heard about the ruckus. I went down and I rescued him. I had troops down in the temple. I wanted to find out what the accusations were against him. I took him before the council, found out that the accusations pertain to their law. I think he's innocent. There was a plot formed against him, and so I'm sending him off to you. But what I want you to notice about the letter is how it casts Lysias in a positive light. Seven times in these four verses, the pronoun I occurs. Seven times. And you start to wonder, is the letter about Paul or is it about Lysias? I did this. I found this. I went here. I did this. I rescued him. I did this. Now I'm doing this. It's kind of how it goes. Do you notice something else that's sort of quirky? Read verse 27 again. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman. What do you notice there that's odd? Did Lysias rescue Paul, having learned he was a Roman? Didn't, did he? No. He didn't find out Paul was a Roman until long after he rescued him from the crowd. But what's Lysias doing? Just a little bit of spin. Now, there are some facts here. Lysias found out he was a Roman, and Lysias rescued him. But the order is mixed up, and it really casts Lysias in a very good light, doesn't it? You know what's missing from all this? What's missing from the letter is little details like this. I thought he was an Egyptian terrorist who led a revolt and led 4,000 out into the wilderness. You notice how that's missing? Lysias doesn't mention that. You notice what else is missing? Before any accusations had been raised, or before he was accused, or before he was tried, I had him arrested, bound, drug into the barracks, stretched out, and I gave orders to scourge him. Before I found out he was a Roman citizen. All of the stuff that would make Lysias look bad is left out of the letter. And the letter is drafted in such a way as to make Lysias look glowingly positive in the eyes of his superior. Now why do I mention that? It is significant, friends, because this is how the providence and the sovereignty of God works. Lysias is acting in his own best interests. He wants rid of the Apostle Paul. Do you think he wanted Paul out of his city? You bet he did. Because every time the Apostle Paul is in public, he has to deal with putting down a riot or a revolt or an accusation or a mob or something like that. His job is to keep the peace. He wants rid of this pest. He wants rid of this prisoner. He wants him off of his hands. So he is sending him off to Caesarea. And Lysias, in doing so, is crafts a letter that will become the official the official record of events in Jerusalem as far as Rome is concerned. And it casts him in the best light. Everything Lysias is doing, Lysias is doing for himself. Lysias is doing for his own best interests. And Lysias is not concerned about the glory of God. He is not concerned about his prisoner Paul. He is not interested, does not know about, and even if he did, wouldn't have cared about the Lord Jesus standing by Paul and saying, i am going to send you to Rome." Everything Lysias does is out of interest to himself. He's not concerned about God or the glory of God or any of that. But here's what's beautiful. Every decision Lysias made was exactly the decision that God wanted Lysias to make. You see that? Think of all the options that Lysias had at his disposal. What could he have done? He could have released Paul, couldn't he? He could have said, look, I find nothing about you deserving of death or even accusation. So, You're free. Leave. Get out of the barracks. I want you out of here. Just go down into the temple. Get out of here. Find a solace in Jerusalem somewhere. I'm done with you. Leave me. You're released. You're free. Go. He could have done that to Paul, but he didn't. He could have disbelieved the report about Paul's nephew, from Paul's nephew about Paul. He could have just said, Oh, this is the wild imaginations of a little boy dreaming and hatching up this plot himself. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to ignore it. And I'm going to bring Paul down to the council just like they've asked me to bring him down to the council. Could have done that. He could have handed over jurisdiction of Paul to the Sanhedrin and say, this concerns your law, your teaching, your theology, has nothing to do with Rome. You guys take him, you try him, you execute him, you punish him, do whatever you want to do. He could have done that. But what did Lysias decide to do? Lysias decided to give Paul, an armed escort with 470 soldiers, to Caesarea. And guess what? That turns out to be the exact decision that God wanted Lysias to make. And Lysias made it selfishly, self-centeredly, self-motivated in his own interests, and yet God worked that to deliver the Apostle Paul. Joseph's brothers, when they sold Joseph into Egypt, were they doing so because they wanted to fulfill the prophecy that the descendants of Abraham would go into a foreign nation and spend 400 years there, and then God would raise up a deliverer and deliver them? Was that what his brothers were thinking? Was Joseph's brothers thinking that they were going to sell Joseph into slavery in hopes that eventually he would rise to the throne in Egypt and come to a position where he could save the entire nation and preserve the line? Is that what his brothers were thinking? His brothers weren't thinking any of that. What were his brothers thinking? We want to kill him. And yet Joseph said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. It was the same intention. God intended something for good. They intended it for evil. Both of them, God and the brothers, willed the same thing. But one willed it with a wicked will. One willed it with a righteous will. And God's will was done. But He used the wickedness of Joseph's brothers to accomplish His will. That's providence. And the soldiers play a part too. What's their part? Look at verse 31. The soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatrus. Antipatrus was a... Little city about 35 miles from Jerusalem, just over halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. Uh, a little stopover city. People would travel halfway, spend the night, and go on the rest of the way to Caesarea the next day, or stop in there on the way from Caesarea to Jerusalem. The city was built by Herod the Great, named after his father Antipater, or Antipatris. And so they, they he named the city after them. That's how far they get Paul. Now, I want you to notice something. They left at nine o'clock at night. And look what Luke says. They brought him by night to Antipatris. They left at 9 p.m., and they traveled 35 miles between 9 p.m. to drop Paul off in Antipatris before it got day. That is a grueling, forced march. That's jogging, that's running, that's racing, that's marching quickly, that is getting him as far away as fast as possibly can. Imagine leaving tonight at 9 o'clock and walking through the night and making it to Hayden Lake before daybreak tomorrow morning. Grueling, grueling. That's what happened. And when they got to Antipatris, they paused for a moment, and Luke says that they sent some of the troops back. When these had come to, sorry, verse 32, but the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. So the horsemen took Paul from Antipatris, the rest of the 25 miles, to Caesarea. Verse 33, when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Here, Gov, here's the letter. And here is your prisoner. And they walk away, and they, I'll tell you something, they are glad to get rid of him. They are glad to have him out of Jerusalem. They are glad to have him away from the mobs, glad to have him away from the Caesar, and they are happy to give him to Felix, and let Felix deal with it, wash their hands, walk away, and they leave right away, and they go back to Jerusalem. And Lysias reads or sorry, Felix reads the letter from Lysias. And he looks down at this old, beaten, worn-out Jew, and he had to have been thinking to himself this looks like the least likely person to cause a riot or to cause problems of anybody I've ever seen in my life. He probably still had his lips split or his lip puffed up from when they had beat him on the mouth in the Sanhedrin just the previous day. And Felix sees him and he asks him, what province are you from? He inquired of him where he was from because whether or not he was from Felix's territory would determine whether or not Felix had jurisdiction to try him. And if Paul wasn't from one of Felix's districts, then Felix would have simply extradited him to the governor who was over him. Paul says, "I'm from Cilicia," and so Felix says, "Okay, I'll give you a trial when your accusers arrive." And until then, look at the end, verse 35 says, "They gave orders for Paul to be kept in Herod's praetorium." That, my friends, listen to this. That's the governor's palace. No suffering here. No discomfort. He hasn't been accused. He hasn't been tried. He is an innocent man. And as he stands before Felix, Felix says, put him in the governor's mansion. The praetorium built by Herod the Great. This is the royal residence. He has gone from suffering to safety. He has gone from discomfort to a plush environment. Plush comfort. And here's the irony of history. You know who Herod the Great was? Herod the Great built the praetorium in Caesarea, also built Antipatris. Herod the Great was the Herod who when he heard from the wise men that somebody had been born king of the Jews, ordered the wise men, when you find him, come back and tell me. Intending to kill the baby who was born king of the Jews. And the wise men were warned, not in a dream, not to go back the same way. So they didn't, they left. And Herod found out about that and he gave the order to have all of the male babies in and around Jerusalem who were two years old and younger, ordered all of them to be killed. But before he did that, God rushed the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary out of there down into Egypt. That was the Herod the Great. Now here's the irony of it. Herod was an enemy of Christ and he hated Christ. And he built this palace, this mansion in Caesarea. And here we are about uh, 60 years later. And the palace that Herod built is being used to give sanctuary to the apostle of the man that he tried to kill. Isn't that incredible how history works? He tried to kill Christ. And now his palace, his house, his mansion is being used as a sanctuary for the apostle of Christ. Apostle Paul. I think God laughs when things like that happen. I really do. I think he chuckles. I think he, I think he designs history in such a way that, friends, when we get to heaven, we're going to look back on all of it and we're going to say, that is a master masterpiece. A masterpiece. You couldn't plan or purpose ironies like that, but the God does. Instead of killing, allowing him to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, he made Herod build a palace that would house the Apostle. And so Paul stayed in plush comfort. Now i got to ask, What did the conspirators do after all of this? What did the conspirators do? They woke up in the morning. They obviously didn't know that the Apostle Paul had been rushed out. Lysias did it under cover of darkness. So the next morning they woke up. What's their plan? Their plan is to have the council request of Lysias to bring the Apostle Paul down to the council so that they could try him and discover his case. And so they wake up and probably do what they'd intended to do. The council meets and the council requests of Lysias, hey, bring Paul down, we want to inquire of his case. And what's Lysias going to say? Sent him off to Caesarea. You did what? We sent him off to Caesarea last night. If you want to bring accusations against him, you pack your bags for Caesarea, because until that, he's in Caesarea, and you can go talk to Felix. Beautiful. And their plans were frustrated. Friends, God brought the Apostle Paul out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. And like, listen, Caesarea just so happens to be a nice stop-off point on your way to Rome, because God told Paul, as you've witnessed for my cause at Jerusalem, you're going to witness for me at Rome also. And everybody in Jerusalem who hated the Apostle Paul said, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. We're going to make sure we kill him. And so their plot and their plan and their scheming and all of their wicked rebellion ends up being the very thing that God used to deliver the Apostle Paul out of Jerusalem. That to me is phenomenal. That is, that is providence. That is what providence is. And we see it in the passage. God using all of these things for the Apostle Paul's deliverance. And friends, you and I tend to tend to think that God can only use the miraculous. Do you know what God uses? He uses a little boy. He uses a Roman governor, a Roman uh, soldier, a centurion. He uses the commander of the cohort who's acting in his own interests. He uses 40 men who are plotting to kill him. He uses all of those things to deliver the Apostle Paul and get him out of the city. That's what God uses. Is there anything supernatural about what we've just read? Anything that we might rightly call miraculous? Nothing. You know what we just read? Just the ordinary stuff of life. Men making decisions in their own interest, doing their own things, everything unfolding according to plan, just natural stuff. People plotting, people scheming, God delivering. All of these things are just the ordinary events of life. Nothing miraculous here. And you know what people do? You know what Christians do? We look for the miraculous and we miss the providential. We think that God can only work through miracles. He has to do something miraculous. He has to heal me without a doctor. He can't just work through a doctor. He can't just work through medicine. We have to have God do a miracle. So we pray for miracles, and we ask for miracles, and we're looking for miracles. And you know what we're missing? All of the providential directing of everything that's right underneath of our noses. When nothing miraculous happens, but the hand of God is all over all of it. And people say, I don't believe in miracles. That's not the truth. I just don't believe God works through miracle workers and apostles and prophets today like He did in the New Testament. But I believe God is doing miraculous things all around us all the time that can't be explained in normal, natural terms. But you know what he does more often than not? Just the providential ordering of natural events to accomplish his purpose because his hand is on all of it. I believe God controls every last single detail of my life and every decision that I make as he guides my steps and I plan and I purpose, but God directs my steps and everything that intersects with me, everything that influences or affects me, every deceit, every detail and decision, whether it be a king or a county commissioner or a police officer or a boss or a spouse or a child, anything that influences my life, he is involved with it in the minutiae, every last thing. Far from seeing God as not involved in anything, I think see Him as involved in everything. Every last detail of my life. Planned and provided for by the hand of God. Do you know what the word providence means? Providence comes from the word provision. How is it that God provides for His creatures? Through providence. He causes the sun to come up and the rain to come down on the land and the land to produce fruit so that His creatures can eat of it. How is it that God provides that His will be accomplished? Through providence just the natural ordering of everything so that everything works out and his will is done because he has spoken it and he will bring it to pass. That doesn't mean that he gives his best shot at predicting the future and hopes he can get as much of it right as he can. Friends, that means that he has already written it because it's his story. It's his future. He holds it in his hand and every detail is his. How much of what you just read is miraculous? None of it. How much of what you just read is accidental? How much of what you just read is accidental? Not a single detail of it was accidental. Through his providence, through his provision, he kept his word to Paul. I'm going to send you to Rome. You've been faithful in Jerusalem, I'm sending you to Rome. Do you think that the next morning when the Apostle Paul woke up, after the Lord appeared to Paul and gave him that promise, do you think the next morning when all of those men, 40 men met together and made that oath that the Lord Jesus was in heaven saying, Oops, I didn't see that one coming. How am I going to foil this? I don't think he did that at all. Right? According to plan. All of their wicked schemes, exactly what the Lord wanted to happen to accomplish his end. That's providence. God rules, friends, and he overrules. First thing we saw about providence was that it does not nullify human responsibility or human means. The second thing that we see about providence from this passage is this, that God overrules the plans of men. He overrules the plans of men. If men's plans contradict God's plans, who wins? If men's purposes contradict God's purposes, who gets their way? If there is a discrepancy between man's will and God's will, who wins in the end? Who gets their say? God does. He must. Why? Because I have purposed it and I will bring it to pass, He said. From this passage, they wanted Paul dead. God wanted Paul in Rome. Who won? Who got their way? Paul God did. It's almost as if the Lord says, give me your best shot. And men say, okay, we're going to scheme, we're going to plot, we're going to ploy, we're going to rebel, we're going to reject. We're going to find a way to overthrow the rule of God. We are going to bring ourselves against God and against his anointed. We're going to do our best to thwart his purpose. We're going to do our best to have our say and make our will triumph. And Psalm 2 verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. laughs. I love that picture of God laughing, scoffing them. na 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 I got my will in the end. And yet we scheme. We plot. We ploy. We do our thing. And God says, I get my way. And He uses the schemes. He uses the ploys. He uses the plots. He uses the wickedness. He uses the decisions, the actions, the sinful events natural catastrophes, everything from the drop of a raindrop to the rise and fall of kingdoms. He uses it all to accomplish His will and His goal. And how does He do that? He does that through providence. Listen to what the psalm says. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 verse 3, Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, in earth, in the sea, and all that is in, in all the hosts of heaven. I'm afraid that some of you don't believe that. You don't believe those verses, and I could multiply hundreds just like them. If you don't believe them, at least sometimes you don't live like you believe them. When life falls apart and things just go haywire, do you pause for a moment and say, okay, what's the Lord trying to do here? What's going on in the midst of this? What is he trying to accomplish? What? How is this going to work out for good? What is he bringing together? Why is he allowing this to happen? Do you stop and pause long enough to say, what is the providential hand of God in his goodness and in his sovereignty trying to accomplish and trying to bring to pass here? Or do you run around and scurry around like you're trying to cover what God can't control? We just don't live like we believe that. But God in his providence directs all things. Friends, this is why, listen, This is why our God can be trusted, because he controls the end and he controls the means. And I can trust him for the end because I can trust him in the means. And everything that happens between now and the ultimate end is under his control, under his hand, under his sovereignty, and under his direction. And it all works out for my good and for his glory. That's the promise of Scripture, and that's what's illustrated here with the Apostle Paul. It's divine providence. And we say with Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His mind is beyond comprehension. His ways are beyond finding out. Because He is wise and He is good and He is loving and He is kind and He is in control. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us in Christ. Thank You that You are sovereign. Thank You that Your hand of providence rules over all. We pray, God, that You would give us the grace to remember this and to see your wonderful hand in the midst of everything that happens in our lives, and to understand you're in control, and that we can trust you in every last detail. We pray that you give us the grace to live like we believe what Scripture says. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.